Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Um, I'm not going to share very long. And you might say, hip, hip, hooray, man. I'm still trying to digest my coffee and my cake. Um, but um, I want to bring you into some of my thoughts, some of my musings over recent time. Is that okay? Um, I want to share not so much an instructional message I normally would. That's why I threw in a little section a little bit earlier on about goal and context and planning and stuff like that because that would have received, that would have been the framework for maybe a larger teaching. But I felt not to go that way. As I was thinking about today's meeting, I wanted to ref- reflect with you about some stuff that's been churning inside of my heart and inside of my head now for several months. And I hope it's helpful to you. I really believe it's going to be a word in season for some of you that are here. Um, come with me to John chapter 3. Nikki quoted one line from these verses a bit earlier. And let me just unpack some ideas with you. John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered, John 3, 27, 28, 29, and 30. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Wow, you could preach out of that for a while, couldn't you? I mean, there's one text. Just to preach on that for a few weeks in church. A man can receive nothing. Didn't say a Christian. You hear that? A man can receive nothing unless he receives it from heaven. Wow. You can preach about that for, even for your own community. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth, and he who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 30 again, he must increase, but I must decrease. I've been thinking about this idea now for several weeks, musing on it, meditating on it, as I do quite regularly. I don't always dive in and out of the Word of God as some sort of ritual or routine. When God speaks to me about something, I have an, I have an intentional habit of spending a lot of time in it, meditating on it, getting its implications in my life, letting it shape my thinking. If it shapes my thinking, it'll shape my life. Because how many realize that behavior follows belief? You walk the way you think. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so I've been meditating on this for now for quite some time. And another section that I'll show you in just in one moment. But in the, N- in the NLT, New Living Translation, it says this, He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. Uh, what I realize is this, for me to become more Christ-like, I have to be less me-like. For Christ-likeness to grow in your life, there has to be less me-likeness and definitely less idol-likeness, as in I-D-O-L, idol-likeness. Um, Message Bible puts it this way. It says this, This is the assigned moment for him to move into the center while I slip off into the sidelines. What a wonderful thought. I believe for many of us as leaders, and definitely for our churches, this is the time for Christ to move into the center and for some things to be sidelined. Because too many of us run the danger of not having Christ at the center of our churches, let alone at the center of our lives. And we would like to think, all of us in this room, that we are Christ-centric people. But I think sometimes we get trapped where Christ is actually not first. Sometimes he runs fourth 
in our world. Maybe it's only me that's like that. Maybe you've never experienced that before. Uh, but I do know the tensions of life, the work, the demands, and all those things can squash out what God's trying to do in our own lives. But I'm just asking, let me ask you a question at the very outset. Um, what needs to decrease in your life so that he might increase in your life? What does God, by his spirit, through your devotion times, through your readings, maybe through preaching, through altar calls, what has God been showing you? What are those things that need to decrease in order for him to increase in your life? What are those things in your life that need to be pushed to the sideline in order for him to remain at the center of our lives? I think it's time for us to have a sober thought about that and realize that there are sometimes, as I said before, through the business of what we do, that sometimes we think we have Christ in the center when really maybe he's not. And I don't think there's any one answer to it, and I'm certainly not going to preach about some of those answers, but I do know that there are things that in all of our lives need to be decreasing in order for him to increase. I want to see Christ moving in our nation. Amen? I want to see him moving in our churches. I want to see him move across the AOG. And I know for him to be able to do that, he has to be at the center, not on the sideline of what we do. And so often we are making plans and making our programs and asking God to bless it, begging him to bless it, when really they were never his ideas in the first place. And that can just lead to a lot of hard work. Um, this, we don't have the benefit of hearing John the Baptist's voice, do we? We don't know the inflection and the tone of the voice when he said these words, he must de- I must decrease and he must increase. We don't have the benefit of knowing what the setting was and, and the way in which he said it. But we do know this, is that it was absolutely necessary that he did this. It was necessary for him to get out of the way in order for Christ to come. It was unavoidable. It was prophetic. It was fulfillment of prophecy. But we also sense this idea that it was also well-pleasing to him. It was the right thing to do. I can get the sense in which John the Baptist's tone of voice was mixed with the sense of this is the right thing to do and I'm happy to do it. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. If I get out of the way, he will come and I'm happy to do that for my role is done now. You see, we have this sense in these words, and certainly when you study the life of John the Baptist, the sense in which he was um, getting out of the way. Lest we forget, for each and every one of us in this room, that we are merely preparing the way of the Lord. We are not the Lord. We're preparing the way of the Lord. So it's dumb, Gary. Of course we're not the Lord. Yeah? But some of us act in our churches like we're the Lord of the church. Right? May I remind all of us that Jesus said, I will build my church. For starters, it's not your church, and you're not building it. Jesus said, I will build my church. This is not Phil Shaw's church. This is his church in Cambridge. Does that make sense? Phil's not building it. God's building it. Our job is to listen to him and do what he says. That's our, that's our job. Paul said, I am a wise master builder. I don't want to build upon other people's foundations. I want to only do those things which God's asked me to do. Does that make sense? Hello? And sometimes we're trapped in this type of thinking. And and why am I saying all this? Because I feel sometimes there's a big tension between what we do and what God does. All right, let me unpack this thought more. This is the things that I've been just stewing on and meditating on in recent times. I feel with John the Baptist that he moved from have to to love to in the way that he spoke there on that day. I have to get out of the way, but I love to get out of the way. I, I, I have to decrease, but I love to decrease. Something happens inside of us when we don't have to do what we have to do, but we love to do what we do. And I think for some pastors, they are tired and worn out 
and burnt out because they're still doing have to rather than love to. And you can only but think you're doing what God hasn't called you to do if you don't love it anymore. Honestly, ask yourself for a moment, do you really love what you do? I say this to some pastors, do you love your community? Some pastors struggle to answer that. Can I say to you, you can't lead what you don't love. If you don't love the community, you don't don't deserve the right to lead it. Because love is the premise for all that we do. Paul teaches us that. You can have this gift and do that, and you can say to this mountain, be removed, and have all of that going on. You can be so great and write books and have a great website, and have people come into church. But in the end, if you have not love, you're a resounding gong. God knows our hearts. I think when you love a community, you have earned the right to speak into it. The same way when talking with people, if they sense your love, they give you the opportunity to speak into their life. Paul said these words. He knew what it was. He said, I have learned in whatever state I am. This is Philippians 4. Verses 11 to 13, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is what he went on to say. If you read a bit more of the story, we we won't do it for the sake of time, but if you read a bit more of the story in Matthew 11, uh, the people came and they started asking about Jesus. Uh, sorry, about John the Baptist. Asking Jesus about John the Baptist. And we see in these few uh, verses that Jesus actually honored John the Baptist and says some incredible things about John the Baptist, but also about us. He says to the people, he says, so when you went out into the wilderness, did you go out there to see a reed when you went out there? Well, the answer is maybe yes or no for some people. So he wasn't an unstable man. He wasn't one that was blown around by every wind of doctrine. He said, when you went out into the wilderness, did you go out there to see a man dressed in fine clothing? Indeed, you won't find a man like that out in the wilderness. You find those people in fine clothing in the palaces. So that's what, that was his rightful place. In other words, what Jesus said, that was his rightful place. For such as the anointing and calling on this guy as a prophetic voice, he should be in the palace, but he's not. He was out in the wilderness. And he says, but indeed, when you went out in the wilderness, did you go out there to see a prophet? And he says, indeed, even more than a prophet. I tell you, you saw more than a prophet when you went out there and saw John the Baptist, right? He said, you'll see, you've seen the greatest prophet of them all. For some prophesied about the Christ, listen to me, some prophesied about the Christ, but it was John the Baptist who said, behold the lamb, he is the man. That's a privileged place to be in, to actually identify the person that everyone's been talking about for all of history and all of time, you see. And then he goes on and says an incredible thing. You ready for it? He says, and the least in the kingdom will be greater than him. And that's why I feel humbled, shocked, and surprised. How about you? Because I feel like I don't measure up to that. Am I the only one? I don't feel like I measure up to that. But so great is God in pronouncing the coming of the Holy Spirit to us, so, 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 so uh, prophetic and so forthright and so uh, visionary is Christ and all of his language when he's speaking that he says, the day is coming when the Holy Spirit will be upon you. Yes, the same Christ that raised me from the dead will live inside of you and greater works you shall do. And we will prophesy of things to come. Think about John the Baptist, uh, sorry, John the Baptist, John the disciple being able to write the words we find in the book of Revelation. Things yet, still yet to be seen. Think about that. It's incredible, isn't it? Greater things we shall see and do. Think about the incredible miracles taking place around the world. Back to this increase-decrease principle again. What needs to decrease in your life in order for Christ to increase in your life? Um, Do you need to decrease 
in self-centeredness in order to increase in compassion? Do you need to decrease in disinterest and increase in interest and true care for people? Do you need to decrease in intolerance so that you might increase in acceptance of people? And especially, especially people in your community. Do you need to decrease in foolishness in order to increase in wisdom? Do you need to decrease in pride in order to increase in humility? Do you need to decrease in criticism in order to increase in encouragement? Do you need to decrease in judgment in order that you might increase in grace? Do you need to decrease in complacency so that you might increase in diligence? Do you need to decrease in my strength so that you can increase in the Spirit's power? Do you need to decrease in self-reliance so that you can increase in prayer? What is it for you? What's your answer to the question? I'm wondering what it is. And I hope as you drive away today, there's a sense in which God... I want you to increase in my life. I want you to increase in my church. I want your presence to increase across my community. But I realize that perhaps there's some things in my life that need to get out of the way. Here's one that I had to deal with. And I'll just pinpoint this one for a few moments before I move on to another thought and close. I had to decrease in the fear of man in order to increase in the fear of the Lord. And I want to tell you this is a big subject for our country right now. For the fear of man is a snare. The Bible says it's a trap, the fear of man. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of, the, of man is a snare. Listen to this message Bible of Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of human opinion disables you, but trusting in God protects you from that. Listen to that again. The fear of human opinion disables you. I think this is one of the reasons why we don't reach out. I think it's one of the reasons why we don't speak up. Because we have the fear of man. Oh, I love those verses in the book of Acts where, where uh, Peter and John say to the, to the rulers, they say, you know, we'd rather obey God than obey you. You see? I want to tell you this tension will come for us in this country. We're becoming so politically correct in all that we do and all that we say. We can't say this and we can't say that. And it's true, friends. In the end, it is diminishing. As Claudio said earlier, it's diminishing the ability to preach the gospel. We need to be very, very aware of this. In our environment, perhaps for some of us, we need to diminish in the fear of man in order to increase in the fear of the Lord. Not only that, but I know what it was like to have, to be living by the opinion of others. I became a workaholic. I, I thrived on hearing just little phrases of thanks and congratulations. Every time I did anything, I prepared a document, preached a sermon, went to a meeting, I was always looking for the praise of man. Fearing that if I didn't hear that, that somehow I wasn't good enough, I didn't measure up. Now I realize that all that stemmed from my early childhood, from not having good father figures in my life. My dad left me when I was three, my stepfather, my Italian stepfather rejected me when I was, which became a Christian, never spoke to him again until the death of my mum, and didn't talk to him either, of course, when I went to his funeral, just two years ago at the age of 82. And I realized the source of it, that I strive to hear from an authority figure, from a father figure, to approve of me. And so I strived and worked hard for people and for bosses and projects to overperform and overcompensate. I was disabled by human opinion. Disabled. 
What God had for me was second, not first. What God really wanted me to do came second, didn't come first. Are you hearing me? Or maybe this is just my journey, maybe it's not yours. Maybe it's totally irrelevant to you. But it comes in other different ways and other shapes and forms as well. Where we feel like we don't want to say certain things in case we get the wrong reaction. So we don't turn to our Indian neighbor and say something about the Lord to him in case he books us, in case he yells at us, in case he rejects us. We don't turn to our neighbor in case they don't like us anymore. And so everything about us, everything that we're called to do, begins to shut down. We don't prophesy the way that we should because we might upset Betty across the back, of, across the back room. We don't move things around because we're upset that people get upset with us in our local church. And friends, it's the fear of man. All I know is this, in order... To cooperate with the Spirit of God and Jesus who's building his church, you have to do what he says in building a church. Is that not true? Paul said, I'm a wise master. Notice that the word wise is there. He didn't say he was just a hard-working builder. It says he was a wise master builder. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is knowing stuff, facts, figures, reality, truth. It's even knowledge. is about possessing about possessing the knowledge of things, about possessing and knowing things. But wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. When you read the book of Proverbs, it's not about the knowledgeable. It's not even about the rich and the poor. The whole book is separated almost into two, two groups of people for the entire planet, the wise and the foolish. That's the comparison made all the way through the book of Proverbs. Friends, wisdom builds the house is what it says wisdom builds the house proverbs says the fear of the lord is anyone the beginning of wisdom hello not the fear of man it doesn't say gain more knowledge it says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom it doesn't say knowledge creates wisdom and say that it says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom you want to be wise in the way that you build the church, the way you lead your life, family, finances, reaching the community? Then it starts with the fear of the Lord. In other words, listening to Him. The fear of the Lord to me is this. It's my desire to please the Lord and live a life that honors Him. That to me is the fear of the Lord. I don't see God as some grumpy old man with a big four by two ready to hit me over the head and punish me for everything that I do wrong like my dad's used to. That's not my image of God. To me, the fear of the Lord is my desire to please and live a life that honors him. The fear of man, on the other hand, is my desire to please others and live a life that pleases them. Fear of man. Fear is faith in what Satan says. Fear of man is placing faith or value in what man says. The Pharisees operated like this. And sadly, a lot of leaders op operate pharisaically. That's true. That's what it says about the Pharisees in John 12, verse 43. It says this, They did not confess him, speaking of Jesus, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God, is what it says of the Pharisees. That was John 12, verse 43. So I've been stewing on this. I've been thinking to myself, you know, God, what is it in my life I scribbled these things down in my diary like a journal. I'm just taking you into where I scribbled down. These things that I've been musing on now for the last couple of weeks. What is it in my life that needs to decrease in order for him to increase? I recognize that there's a tension in my life 
between what I do and what God does. There's a tension in my world between what I am responsible for doing and what only God can do. Does that make sense? So John 3.20, you like that verse? Now to him, yeah, who is able to do, you know the verse now? Because we quote it all the time. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, oh, beautiful words, aren't they? Think about these two words. It's like, it's a double whammy. It's a double barrel shotgun. Exceedingly would be enough. Now Simon can do exceedingly well, right? Look at Simon over here. Simon is exceedingly strong. But if I say he's exceedingly abundantly more than strong, I mean, you're looking for a giant, aren't you? I mean, think about it, right? So it says, right, uh, that now unto him, not to you, unto him, not you, unto him who is able to do exceedingly, wow, abundantly. And if that's not enough, more. Exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ask or think, it says. Think about it. More than you think and more than you can ask, right? One version says, uh, beyond your wildest imagination, right? Um, you can never outdream God. If you think that's a wild goal and a big dream that you've got, he's already beyond, way, exceedingly abundantly more than that, you see? Now, great verse, isn't it? But what we often do with that verse is we do what I just did then, we often half quote it. Now, to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think, dream or imagine, one version says, comma, not full stop, comma, according to the power that's at work within us. Wow. What a great verse. So now I realize only him, he, can do exceedingly abundantly, but he does it according to what's happening inside of me and through me and the power that's at work in me. So I'm involved in the process. So to me, there's a tension in my world. There's a tension in my life, in my ministry, in the way that I lead. Patty, what's up to me? And what's up to God to do? Now, to him who is able, but he does it according to what's working me. How does that work? At what point in time do I get out of the way so that God can do the work? So, what way, in what way do I want him to increase and me to decrease? Are you catching the picture now? And I find there's a daily tension in my life, so just let me just hang with me for a few minutes. Minutes. It says this in my journal here. There is a tension between what we are called to do and what only God can do. I often get frustrated by a seeming lack of results. Am I the only one in the room? I strive and I stretch to and serve to see AOG repurposed, for churches to grow, for leaders to wake up to his greater vision and mission. I often wonder at the end of a week what progress has been made. You ever do that? What have I really done this week? I frequently muse at the mystery and even the synergy between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. At the favor of God and the brilliance of man. I have so many friends who say, look at this. Oh, God's so good. Hallelujah. American accent. Praise God. They were, they were English like three minutes ago, but now suddenly they've gone American. Look at this, you know. And I look at it sometimes and wonder, was that the favor of God? Or was that just your brilliance? 
Did God provide the funding or did you just apply for it? Did God do that or are you just a great preacher? There's a tension between the sovereignty of God and the brilliance of man. You see? And I think sometimes they're blurred. I think sometimes what we call the favor of God is not the favor of God at all. I think God's good toward us, but I think sometimes it's just us doing our thing. That's what I think. So I often wonder how much is up to me and how much is up to God, really. I want to see a revival, but I wonder what a real revival would look like in the UK. And I wonder, is that revival up to God or is that up to me? I mean, one author says, you can have revival whenever you want to pay the cost. That's when you can have revival. Whenever you're willing to pay the cost and pay the price, that's when you'll have revival. On the other hand, some would say this, no, it's a divine sovereign act of God. We have nothing to do with it. Then there's that one in between who says somehow it's both working in synergy together. For God's spirit is poured out divinely. He does things in revivals that no one can explain when his people humble themselves and pray and fast and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Amen. You see? And does God save a nation without us opening up our mouths? Does he build the church and we don't participate? So if if it's just about God building the church, then Phil, get out of the way. Don't even hold church tomorrow. See if it works. You might say, Gary, you're being a little bit weird. Now, friends, there's a tension between, in all of our lives, between what God does and what we do. And the sovereignty of God or the brilliance of man increase, decrease. There's tension between the two. I sometimes wonder whether our preaching is reaching, if our praying is effective, and if our planning is even productive at times. It was Leonard Ravenhill, the apostle of prayer, they called him, who said that most of our praying is wasted because we're asking God to do things that he asked us to do. Another man authored on prayer, I think it was E.M. Bounds, he said, much of our praying is but giving God advice. So I'm challenged to find this balance in my life. What about you? I want to know what's really in God's hands and what's in my hands to do. So, God gave me some verses and stories to look at, and we'll finish with these. John chapter 4, Jesus turns the water into wine. But lest we forget that it was the servants who prepared the vessels, and they filled them with water, and they served them. Hello? You see, and in the same way, Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 20, and Acts 9 verse 15 talks about us being chosen vessels. Timothy talks about us being vessels prepared for honor. In the same way, we can prepare vessels, and we can prepare even our own vessel. But we can prepare vessels called leaders and prepare our congregation called vessels of honor. And we can do that, and we can uh, uh, see them filled with the Holy Ghost, and we can uh, place them in places of area of service and all the rest of it. But only God can supernaturally make them the best leaders this country has ever seen. Because I still believe that if this nation is to be saved, then we have to go way beyond what the Wesleys did. We have to realize that their time is gone and it's now us. But still, the greatest churches this country has ever seen are not going to be led by people in this room. That's the truth. If we really believe, if we read the last part of this book and we believe that God's going to save nations and do incredible things in places like England, then those churches 
not going to be led by us. Why? Because we're too old. You see, that's why we have to invest in the next generation coming through. So I can prepare the vessels and I can fill them with water and I can serve, but only God turns water into wine. You see? And we can do all of this even in the life of our church, but only God can work the supernatural act. So I realize there's a tension between what he does and what I do. Another story, John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. You see, they were told to organize the people into groups, weren't they? They brought the organization, and they even found the substance for the miracle. Two fish, five loaves that they pinched off a little boy, brought it over. So they brought, the, they brought the substance and they organized the people in much the same way the AOG can reorganize and reshuffle. Yeah? Not regions, but now we're going to have areas and we're not going to have districts. Now we're going to have zones. And we can do all this stuff and change things around and even provide some substance called some offerings. But in the end, only God can multiply and see people saved and only he can work a miracle and feed a country. Does it make sense? Only he can make the bread of the word actually work in people's lives. We can preach it, but only he changes life. How many realize it doesn't matter how good a preacher you really think you are on a Sunday, no one is really changed by your words. They're only changed by God who moves upon your words. They're only changed by the Holy Spirit who convicts the people according to the word. It's only he. Isn't that true? We can do all of this, but in the end, but I realize I do have a role to play. So I don't need to have pressure on me in certain areas of my life. Am I making sense now? There's some things I need to leave over to the sovereignty of God. There is a role that I need to play, and I find that sometimes I find myself stepping into God's domain, trying to do what only he can do. And I find myself sometimes asking God to do things that he asked me to do. And knowing the two in my life is wisdom. What about John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus? Uh, he says to us, move the stone out of the way. It's up to us to move the obstacles out of the way so that people can come from darkness into light. What's the obstacle look like? Prejudice? What does it look like? Irrelevance? What does it look like? Religion? What does it look like? What is a rock that needs to be moved out of the way? The rock that causes people to stumble. The people say you can't see the forest for the trees. True? Yeah? People can't see Jesus with the church. Obstacles. He says, you move the stone. He calls him by name. We can call people by name, but only he can call them out of darkness into light. Then when he came out, what did he look like? What did this man, Lazarus, who was four days dead and in the heat, therefore he stunk, as he was reminded by Mary and Martha, he's coming out. What did he look like when he came out from that tomb? Remember? He was mummified. He was wrapped up. So what did Jesus then say? Unwrap him. One version says, loose him. Ah, interesting word, isn't it? Loose him and let him go. One says, unwrap him and let him go. You see, by the power of God and by the grace of God, we are saved, but only the truth sets us free. And every time we speak truth, we unwrap the blindfold on a person's mind. Every time we hug a person who's disadvantaged, we're unwrapping hatred and rejection in their life. Every time we speak words of encouragement, we're unwrapping rejection over life. Think about all the things that we do to unwrap over people's lives. But friends, in the end, you and I don't raise people from the dead. I don't care how great the evangelist is, he didn't raise them from the dead. God raised them from the dead. He just chose a vessel to do it through. Amen? But I have to be the vessel. Am I making sense now? 
I can't do what only God can do and I have to do what only I can do. And dare I go over and try and do things that only God's anointed to do and not me. Acts chapter 2, early church revival. The disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and communion and worship and feeding the poor and meeting the needs of people. In the same way, we can reinforce apostolic teaching. We can have great zone meetings and conferences. We can donate to missions and in care and start up food banks all over this country. But ultimately, only God adds to the church daily those that are being saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Didn't it say, and Peter added to the church daily those who are being saved? It said, and the Lord added to the church daily those that are being saved. Do you want to see that? Well, it's important that we do all of the above, but in the end, only he adds to the church those that are being saved. Two more and I'll close. Matthew 9, the harvest. Jesus looks upon the multitude, sees there are people without a shepherd, and he weeps. Takes the disciples, he preaches in the cities, the villages, preaching the kingdom of God, healing, moves compassion. He says, the harvest is ready, one version says. The harvest is ready. Contrary to popular Christian opinion, your city and your town is actually ready to receive God. That's the truth. They may not be ready to embrace your church or your churchianity or your religiosity, but they're certainly ready to embrace Jesus. This is what I have found. The more I talk to people about Jesus and stop talking about church, the more interested they are. Interesting, isn't it? You see, because their perceptions of church are so wrong, but their idea of Jesus is sometimes almost remote in a nation like England these days. The harvest is ready, it's plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, he said, pray to the Lord for the harvest. Is that what he said? No. Sorry, Jeff. Play on words. He said, pray the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. He made a declaration to us. Listen to it carefully. He made a declaration to us that the harvest truly is plentiful. It is ripe, one version says. One version says ready. One says ripe. One says plentiful. Put them all together. Ripe, ready, and plentiful. Therefore, he says, don't pray for it. He says, pray to send workers to go into it. You see, our responsibility is to respond to that. Our responsibility is to pray. We can prepare workers, but ultimately only he calls and only he sends into the harvest field. And finally, Acts chapter 10. I love this story. For the very first time, we see the gospel going to the Gentiles. So Peter, it says, it was lunchtime, and he's hungry. It says he goes up on a rooftop to pray. The Bible says in the New King James, it says, when he's up there to pray, it says he fell into a trance. I wonder what that looked like. You know? He fell into a trance. I wonder what falling into a trance looked like for someone who was praying. I don't know. But he fell into a trance. And then it says... That, he, there was, that a vision was revealed to him. Interesting thing here, the vision was revealed to him three times. On the other side of town, Cornelius, who's an unsaved man, who fears God and gives to the poor. A, a little Interesting little, little thing in there. It says that God had heard and kept record of his prayers and his giving to the poor, even though he was not a Christian. Isn't that interesting? I think it is anyway. And he hears, he gets a vision about sending a soldier and two of his servants over to Peter's house. 
listen to it, he, obe- he, he obeys immediately. On the other hand, Mr. Apostle Peter, on the roof over here, has to receive the vision three times and still hasn't obeyed. And after the sheet is taken up with all the four-footed and hooves animals, which according to his religion he was not allowed to eat because he was a Jew, as his prejudice is being confronted, his religion is being confronted, his worldview is being confronted, his picture of the kingdom of God is being confronted, all happens in a space of minutes. Are you with me? It says, and while he wondered within himself what the vision meant, he still hadn't obeyed, he's still wondering about it. He hears a knock at the door. Maybe, just perhaps, the problem is not with the world after all. Maybe the problem is with the church. How many times does God need to speak to us before we'll actually get motivated to reach the world? Hello? Where the world gets one vision and responds straight away. So, I know that we can teach and we can cast vision and we can pray and we can receive visions. In the end, we have to respond and we have to go. But all I know is this, that even as we go, only Christ can convert Cornelius' home. Only he can convert your neighbors. Uh, We can be, uh, like Nikki was talking earlier, reaching out to Dave next door. We can be doing that, but ultimately only he can touch the heart. So I see in my life there's a tension between what I do and what God does, what only I can do and what only God can do. Increase and decrease. What is it in your life that needs to decrease in order for him to increase in your life? What are those things in your life that you need to sideline in order for him to remain in the center? Maybe you're not like me. Maybe I spent the last 30 minutes talking to myself. Maybe you've never fallen into the trap of trying to do things that only God can do. But I know is this, is that when we get that synergy and balance in our lives, there truly is a great blessing that comes to our church and to our ministries as well. I know this, Jesus builds his church, but I need to be a wise master builder. So knowing what it is that I'm called to do and making room for him to build his church is of utmost importance to us in the AOG. Being Pentecostal is an interesting thing. We talk about being Pentecostal. We talk a lot about Pentecostal and we say, well, because I speak in tongues. To me, being filled with the Spirit is a whole lot more than speaking in tongues. A whole lot more than that. Especially when you read the tenor of the, of the New Testament and all the references made to the Holy Spirit or the, filling of the, in, the infilling of the Spirit of God. And I realize that one of those results of being filled with the Spirit of God is that I'll be led by Him. That I'll hear His voice with clarity and distinction. And that I'll have the grace and the anointing to do what He asks me to do. That's all part of the simple idea of being a Pentecostal people, recognizing His work among us and listening to his voice. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening and we trust that the word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.